This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's got curly, fluffy, soft black hair, and she's very adorable. And she's a part of our family, and we care a lot about taking good care of her. And that includes feeding her high-quality dog food like Merrick's. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. They always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Merrick creates homestyle recipes like Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato or Grammy's Pot Pie, so you can feel good about what you're feeding your pet. I mean, you know, you come home from being out, and your dog is there to greet you, and, like, that's one of the best things about having a pet, you know? You come home, the dog's happy to see you, and they're hungry. And you want to reciprocate that good feeling they give you. When you walk in the door, you want to give to them in the form of some high-quality food. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. What would you say is your biggest area of disagreement, food, food-related? Wow, that's such a great question. Hamburgers. What's our- Hamburgers. Burgers? Hamburgers is our biggest area right. of disagreement? Sorry, we're well, how do you about disagree? the disagreements. I know, you're now arguing over what you disagree most about. Well, what do you, what think, do you think? I'm just trying to understand what you think is wrong about what I think about hamburgers. What could you possibly think? This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Why do you have to heat oil in a pan before adding the onions? I feel like I'm an Andy Rooney voice right now. Remember Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes? Why do you have to heat oil in a pan before adding the onions? Do you really need a mortar and pestle to grind up your spices? Where's the line between a simmer and a boil? Where, I ask you? These are the kinds of questions that keep me, and I know some of you, up at night. Today we're going to get answers with the authors of the new book, Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes to Raise Your Cooking Smarts. First up, we have Daniel Holtzman, a chef and founder of The Meatball Shop here in New York. Hey, Daniel. Dan, glad to share a name with you. Thanks for having us. And so for, for clarity's sake, you'll continue to go by Daniel, your chef, Daniel. I'll be Dan. If Actually, if you would just do the Andy Rooney voice the whole time, that would make it easier for <laughs> listeners to differentiate us. That's right. And then, of course, we have Matt Rodbard, a food writer. He's the founder and editor of Taste Magazine and author, along with Dookie Hong, of Koreatown, a cookbook. Hey, Matt. Pleasure to be here, Dan. So, Matt, you're the food writer. Daniel, you're the chef. And you met, Matt, you were going to interview Daniel for something you were writing, and you two became fast friends. Ten years ago, I met him at the opening of the Meatball Shop. He's an extremely passionate food guy who has an encyclopedic knowledge of not just food, but things like flying planes, building grills. Like, the guy has a lot of traits and talents, and I got to know that ten years ago, and I've gotten to know it more now through Food IQ. And Daniel, question to you. Let's say I was one of your chef buddies and I was like, oh, that guy, Matt Rodbard from Taste, the, the food writer, he came to interview you. What's he like? What's his deal? I would say that Matt is kind-hearted, intelligent. I was interested in learning about writing and I talked to some folks about that and everybody kind of kind of shooed me away. And Matt said, well, if you're interested, let's work together. And he has this generosity that's very unique and special. Oh, well, that's very nice. I'd say, too, Daniel's a, a really nice guy, too. Yeah, you got to follow up now that I said all that nice stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Daniel, you you were in fine dining, right? You were at Le Bernardin, one of the fanciest high-end restaurants in America, and you switched from that to opening up the meatball shop. I worked in fancy restaurants, and, um, you know, 
most of my kind of like formal education cooking came from that world. And at some point I recognized that the folks that were eating in those restaurants weren't representative of my friends, my family, um, people that I, you know, spend time with. And I wanted to kind of share the food that I loved with the people that I love to hang out with and share it with folks that, that can afford to eat it. And Matt, I know in particular, you've done a lot of uh, work with Korean food. Uh, you co-wrote the book Koreatown with Chef Dookie Hong. So I'm curious, what's a dish that in Seoul is kind of like everywhere, everyone loves it, it's pretty common, but but maybe in Korean restaurants in America isn't as common. If you could be like, this is the dish that everyone needs to be eating, what would it be? I have two answers. The way Koreans eat Fish, raw fish, is different than a Japanese sashimi where it's been mouthed out over time. Hui is you're pulling fish directly from a tank. You're pulling all sorts of different fish, and you're and you're you're butchering it, and you're bringing it to your table um, within 20 minutes. And you're not putting soy sauce on it. You're putting um, a, a crimson sauce called chojang, which is uh, gochujang and vinegar, and that's oh. the most amazing experience. And it's definitely not seen in, in all Korea towns around America. My second answer is quickly kongbishi chige, which is so great. It's like a blended tofu stew. I think anyone who has a Korean friend who is Korean has had kongbishi chige. It's a very comforting style of, of chige. Oh, man. So the two of you are both very curious. And so the idea that you would team up for a book called Food IQ... Seems like it makes a lot of sense. Now, you say your book is designed for a person that you describe as foodie 2.0. You guys are trying to kind of redefine the word foodie a little bit here. Is that right? Agree fully. We're reclaiming the term foodie. Foodie is not an F word. Um, <laughs> I will reclaiming it, on- it from who? Reclaiming it from like pretentious jerks? Pretentious journalists like me. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of somebody who, who, who isn't just beginning to cook, knows, knows how to cook but isn't as confident as they want to be in the kitchen. Matt, what's something you learned working on this book that really surprised you? Let's start with frozen vegetables. I mean, for real, I am like, May comes around and like, let's let's buy peas at the green market and, and let's, let's like really cherish these peas and let's pick them one pea at a time out of the pod. I'm with Daniel in his apartment and we're sitting in front of four bags of frozen vegetables, mostly peas and asparagus, and we're cooking risotto and it's, it's delicious. And the point is, I learned at that moment that there are certain vegetables that are great from the farmer's market, but also there are vegetables that really it, it doesn't matter. And in fact, freezing them makes for a better um, experience. Yeah, I'm I'm all about frozen peas. I always have frozen peas in my house. They're like my number one go to. Like if I'm if I have anything in a pot or a pan and I'm like, mm, this needs something healthy in it. Dump some frozen peas in. I remember as a young as a young guy working at Laberna Den. Um, well, all all their food is frozen. We know that, Daniel. They Everything had, at Laberna Den, right out of a vacuum seal pack. I get it. They, they had a uh, green giant peas and butter sauce what, that on one of their dishes, the frozen ones. Really? And Eric, when when a fr- Eric Repair, who is the chef at Laberna Den? Yeah, when a French chef would come through that he really respected and loved, he would always kind of like chuckle and bring him to the kitchen tour and show him the green giant peas in the freezer and then like insist that they open up and taste them because, you know, say what you want. But when was the last time you had a pea as delicious as a frozen pea? They're really, really good. If they're good enough for the Bernardin, they're good enough for me. (laughs) 
So we've established that you both have a lot of strong opinions and passion about food and curiosity. And in your book, Food IQ, you take questions and you seek to really deeply research the questions, find answers, and then you have recipes that, that sort of give give the reader an opportunity to kind of learn or sort of review what you've just learned and, and see see that lesson in action. So we reached out to some of our listeners who have questions, and we got them ready for you. We got them lined up. Are you ready to answer some questions? Sure. 100% ready. All right, let's hear the first listener. Hi, Dan, Matt, and Dan. This is Miriam from Somerville, Massachusetts, the home of Dan Pashman's alma mater. My question today is about mac and cheese. I can make a really good stovetop pot mac and cheese, you know, with a bechamel sauce and you just serve it hot. But I have a lot of trouble with baked mac and cheese. It always gets really dry. Uh, is this my cheese blend? What's going on here? How can I have a baked mac and cheese with a crumb top, but is still gooey and cheesy under that topping? This is just such a great question. This is like the holy grail of American cookery is how do you make a great baked mac and cheese? For a baked mac and cheese, we use a an egg-based rather than a bechamel-based sauce. And by using uh, an egg-based sauce, it will bake, maintain its creaminess without breaking. Um, the bechamel sauce, the problem with that is when it gets hot, when you bake it in the oven over time, the fat separates. And so the cheese kind of coagulates into a little curdly chunks, and then you get this grease on the bottom and the pasta tastes dry. And we spoke with Therese Nelson, who uh, runs Black Culinary History. She talks about mac and cheese and its place, its very important place in black food. And um, she also agreed with Daniel's uh, assessment about the egg being necessity for baked mac and cheese. That's interesting. I, I, that, that, that's news to me, and I'm excited to try that. I, my, the way I do it is make a stovetop mac and cheese, get it nice and saucy and gooey, then put it in the baking pan, top it with breadcrumbs, and broil it for just a couple of minutes so that you crisp the breadcrumb topping without drying out the inside. So That's what I've always done. And I'm like, I was all for it. But then, you know, the reality is that if you want to make a mac and cheese in an environment like, you know, a Thanksgiving dinner where it's going to be cooked, brought somewhere, reheated, or you need to, you need it to sit for a long time. You run into this question. You know, when I go to like uh, Arnold's meat and three in Nashville has this, this Mac and cheese that sits in these, in these, you know, the steam table pans and it's like heaven. How do they make it? Eggs. It's eggs, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's keep it moving up next. We have 14 year old Elliot in Seattle. If lukewarm means room temperature, why do people say room temperature and not lukewarm, or vice versa? Also, what is lukewarm? Who is this Luke, and why is he warm? And what is the significance of this? Genius. Get him a TV show. (laughs) Get him a radio show. Get him a podcast. Love this kid. Room temperature water and lukewarm water, I think a 15 degree difference. That's that's what I think of. Daniel and I actually debate about a temperature of water sometimes, but I think you've got room temp and 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 15 plus is Luke. Ultimately, I think Elliot um is 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 touching on something that in cooking is really important. A recipe can be written very, very specifically to tell you exactly what to do. And then there are some terms that, you know, are not scientifically defined that have a little bit more leeway. And when a writer says or or chef and uses a term like 
lukewarm. What that really means is it doesn't exactly matter what exactly the temperature is. If I wanted it to be 105 or 107 degrees, I'd, I'd say that. But, you know, the real difference is lukewarm means if you run your hand under the faucet, um, it's a little bit warm to the touch. Um, so it's like room temperature, you shouldn't really feel the temperature of the water. Maybe it should be slightly cool. And then lukewarm is slightly warm. All right, now I have a question for you. This is one that really, I really struggle with. When I get a recipe that says something like simmer a soup or a sauce, or maybe they'll say a low boil, and I don't know exactly where the line is between a simmer and a boil, and it stresses me out. <laughs> you know, let's say something's supposed to simmer for half an hour. I walk away from the stove, and I come back, and there's like 12 different bubble areas bubbling all at once. I'm like, oh no, it's gone from simmer to boil. You know, like I crossed the line, turn the flame down a tiny bit, walk away, come back five minutes later, there's just one little bubble, bloop, bloop. Oh no, it's not simmering now. Turn it back up, I leave and come back. It's boiling again. This is my life. So um, where's the line? Please help me. <laughs> Ultimately, look, cooking is supposed to be fun. Does it matter exactly what the temperature of the water is? Or is this a recipe where, you know, if it's boiling a little faster or slower, like if I'm boiling a potato, it doesn't necessarily matter. But again, there's if they're not scientifically defined terms, so like you can disagree with me and you'd be right, except I'd still be right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we got a bunch more listener questions lined up for you. We're going to throw those your way. You guys ready? As ever. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. 
I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, if you missed our last episode, there was some huge news from the pasta world. I have partnered with Bonza to make a version of Cascatelli from chickpeas. So not only is it gluten-free, it's also higher in protein and fiber. And let me tell you, it is delicious. But making this version of Cascatelli was not easy. I had to get a crash course in the science of gluten-free pasta. Then we had to overcome manufacturing issues to get it done in time for a very tight deadline. We have some work to do. So we're under a bit of a time crunch. It's exciting, though. Yeah. Nothing like, a, nothing like a deadline. I mean, easy for me to say. I'm here in my basement. I'm just like, you guys keep on rocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, appreciate the support from afar. <laughs> Hear that whole story in last week's episode, which is Mission Impossible Part 8. And get Bonza's Cascatelli made from chickpeas exclusively at your local Whole Foods or order it direct from Bonza and get it shipped to your door with free shipping. For that, go to eatbonza.com. All right, I'm joined once again by Matt Rodbard and Daniel Holtzman, authors of the new book, Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes to Raise Your Cooking Smarts. Hello again, guys. Hey there. Glad to be here. All right, let's go back to our listeners. Who's up next? Hi, Sporkful. This is Samantha Bailey from Greensboro, North Carolina. My question that I've always wondered is, what is a shallot? And not necessarily what is it? Like, I know it's this little onion things, but when you see in a recipe that it requires two shallots, is that two bulbs of the shallot or like the pieces that peel off of the bulb? If you can answer that for me, that'd be fantastic because either I'm putting (laughs) too much shallot in my recipes or not enough. Thanks. I I love this question. I would like to add uh, my own question, which is, aren't shallots just bullshit? (laughs) <laughs> like they're just onions that are more expensive and smaller and harder to find. I mean, are they bullshit? I wish I could say yes. I wish I could be like they are bullshit, Dan. But to me, they're mild. They're more they're more mild. I think there's less astringency with shallots and I think it offers home cooks some wiggle room, especially when cooking with raw shallots. You see shallots a lot in salad dressings. I think it's because you just don't want a super stringent um, yellow Spanish onion in that salad dressing or in that salad. Fair. And as someone who generally does not, I don't love raw onions because of that of that sharp onion flavor. It's just too much. And I feel like once, it, once you eat one piece of raw onion, it's all you're tasting for the next two days. So in that case, I, I could agree that shallots could be better. But is it, <laughs> is it fair to say like in a pinch, you can pretty much always substitute onions for shallots? Yes. In a pinch, you could pretty much always substitute onions for shallots. All right. But what about Samantha's question? What actually is a shallot? This is definitely a food writer question because I think it speaks to the heart of the like 
you know, is this a is this a good question or is this a poorly written recipe? I think when I say two shallots, I mean two shallots. Like to, to be honest, like it's not the whole. So the the whole the whole shallot. Yeah, of course. All right. Before we get to the next listener question, I have a question. Actually, this one comes from my mother-in-law who emailed me this question by chance last night. And I was like, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm talking to two guys tomorrow who probably do. So almost every recipe you see that begins with sauteing onions, it always says, heat the oil in the pan, then add the onions. My mother-in-law, Alice, asks, why? Why can't you just put the onions and oil in the pan and then turn the heat on within a few minutes it will start sizzling and it will end up the same won't it like is there really a difference why does the oil need to be heated in advance alice you're right boom <laughs> that's Next just question. It. like i just put the onions right in the pan with the oil i turn it on I, it heats up fine i would say i was working with a chef like 10 years ago on a story i was in his kitchen his restaurant and like he did he just combined it all at once and just walked away and i was like what and and and, it, and and for real, like to Daniel's point, it was like, it doesn't matter. Another question I want to ask you guys, this one's in the book, and this actually recently caused debate on our local town Facebook group. Someone posted a picture of some ground beef from the local supermarket, you know, in, in its plastic package. It wasn't bright red. It was kind of, it was brownish. And someone was saying, look, can you believe that they're trying to sell this meat in the supermarket that's gone bad? Mm. And I posted and said, actually, don't talk ill of the local supermarket. That meat hasn't necessarily gone bad. Uh, but I, I kind of started to get in over my head in terms of the science of like, when has meat gone bad? And what can you tell by the color of it? So so when do you know meat has gone bad? What does the color tell you about it? I feel like um, the meat has not gone bad. We tend to overreact as a culture toward in Americans in particular about funky smells and, and throwing away meat. Ultimately, generally speaking, a little bit brown means that it's oxidized. Um, uh, the bright red color is actually unnatural. If you ever cut yourself and bleed, you'll notice that the blood turns brown quite quickly. They work hard in supermarkets to package things in a way that keeps them looking good. But ultimately, right, that's what I was trying to say. Like, like they pump some kind of gas into those packages yeah, to, to make keep it the red. Meat bright red. Right. And so the fact that the meat had turned dark brown doesn't um, make a difference. I, I mean, I'm an old school guy who grew up poking holes in the plastic wrap and smelling stuff because your nose knows. I mean, it doesn't lie. Like <laughs> That's not old school, Daniel. That never goes out of style. <laughs> like, I, so I, I think poke a hole in there and, 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 and your nose should be your ultimate decider. <laughs> when something has really gone bad, it lets you know. I mean, you would never accidentally eat a piece of rancid meat. I worked at a fancy restaurant, La Bernadette, and one of my first jobs was shucking oysters. When you open a bad oyster, I mean, a, a, an oyster that has gone bad, the smell is so extraordinary that it will fill the entire room with a putrid stench that is unmistakable. I mean, it's 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 like you got to put the trash out and then throw the trash can away um, and pray your neighbors don't find it. You're never going to accidentally eat a bad oyster. Like when people get sick, they, they get sick because they eat salad, not oysters. More commonly, right. It's more often raw vegetables because you don't cook them. Every time. It's always the salad. Stop eating salad, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got more cooking questions for you. Who's next? Hi, Dan. This is Cole from San Jose, California. When I make potato salad, 
I peel and cut the potato first, then boil them. My partner boils the potatoes whole, then peels and cuts them after they're cooked. Which way is better? Curveball. Peeling and cutting the potato. Um, I have not found any difference. Um, when you boil them whole, you're less likely to overcook them. And so it is a little bit easier. Um, and if you if you overcook a, a pre-cut and pre-peeled potato, it does tend to get soggy. What I would say is if you're if you're confident in the kitchen and you don't overcook your potatoes, then peeling them is a better a better method because it's uh, it's faster, but it's definitely safer and easier to cook them whole. That makes sense. All right, let's keep it rolling. Another question from a listener. Hi, Sporkful. This is Kate in Indianapolis with Steve. That's my husband. And we have a longstanding food dispute over the best way to mix powder into a viscous liquid. Now, if you have a liquidy thing, a whisk is obviously the best. Um, but when we have something more viscous like brownie batter, I think that a spoon is the best way to mix it because it creates a lot of momentum, which makes everything smush together and mixes all the little bits in. But I think a fork is the superior implement because the gaps between the tines provide like little tiny micro uh, perturbations to mix all the little parts into the, the liquid. Yeah, I think that's just nonsense. I don't know. Micro perturbations has a nice ring to it. It's still bullshit. <laughs> Spicy. <laughs> I get A plus for the perturbation. But does it actually, is he actually right? Like when you're mixing something thick like brownie batter, does it matter whether you use a spoon or a fork or is there a third better option? I feel like there is not a right answer. I think it's about personal taste and how you combine these ingredients. Um, Daniel, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think, I, th I like a rubber spatula a lot. And I think in general, it is a case by case basis. If it's a case by case basis, Daniel, how do you know if whatever you've chosen is the correct choice? What could you look for when mixing something? For something like a brownie batter, a whisk becomes inefficient because um, uh, the brownie batter gets stuck in there and it's a pain in the butt to clean and, you, and it's wasteful. So like, you know, a rubber spatula or a wooden spoon might be the best implement, um, but a fork would work fine. Thin liquid, whisk, thick liquid, wooden spoon, end of story. <laughs> All right, let's do one more listener question. Hi, Hi Dan. Dan. This is Arwen. And Karen. We live in England in a city called Leicester, and we'd like you to weigh in, please, on this debate we've been having about whether or not you have to salt the water when you cook pasta. We've lived together for These two went on for a while. I'm going to jump in and summarize. Arwen says, the internet tells us to salt our pasta water. The salt seasons the pasta, and it increases the boiling point of the water and makes your pasta cook faster. Kieran says, look, I'm a scientist. I can tell you the salt in the water is not going to increase the boiling point, and you can just season the pasta with salt after it's cooked. That way you don't waste a bunch of salt that stays in the water and gets poured down the drain. Now, I want to hear from both of you, but I should say that we did actually bring this question to Bill Nye, the science guy, here on the show a couple years back, and he did confirm part of what Kieran says, which is to change the boiling point of your water, you would have to have a ton of salt. Like, it would have to be 10 or 20% salt. The ocean is 3%, okay? So you're not going to add enough salt to your pasta water to make a difference in how it boils. I'm going to disagree with Bill Nye. Oh, Sorry. Wow. Sorry, science guy. I know you're wow. genius. Um, wow. I think it's not so much that it makes it boil faster so much as that it makes it boil hotter. I never salt the water until the water comes to a boil. If you wait 
until it's already boiling and then salt the water, it remains at a boil and it allows it to absorb more heat in its boil, raising the temperature. Is this something you've tested, Daniel? Yeah, I have. With a thermometer? I, I mean, I'm not Bill Nye, the science guy, but, you know, if you add, if you add salt to water, it ionizes and, you know, freezes because colder I, I and boils hotter. Bill, and because I, I said to Bill, I said, look, Bill, I hear what you're saying, but it, it feels to me like when, a, like when the water is already kind of boiling and then I take a bunch of salt and drop it into the pot, all of a sudden... It goes boil faster. Exactly. Like all of a sudden, it, you know, the boil goes bananas. And so what's happening there, if it's not... I'm jumping in here. Daniel, Matt, and I went back and forth on this for a while. What Bill and I explained is this. When your water is very hot and you put salt in and it bubbles up, the temperature of the water, the boiling point of the water, none of that is actually changing. What's happening is the salt crystals make what's called nucleation sites. Basically, the salt crystals cause more bubbles to form. Also, it's possible the temperature contrast between the salt and the water makes the water fizz up. Either way, your water's not actually boiling more, it's just bubbling more. It could have to do with the sea level. That makes perfect sense. I think that makes sense. So so I, I scratched my earlier answer. Turns out Bill Nye's not wrong. Um, <laughs> shucks. All that being said, there is a very good culinary reason why you still should salt your water before you make pasta. Isn't that right, Daniel? Like Kieran says, just sprinkle some salt on top of your pasta when it's finished cooking. But what do we say to Kieran? Unequivocally, adding the salt to the water is going to season the pasta, which takes time for the salt to absorb into the hard pasta. And then that's a full stop important on, you know, you don't need more than that. Whether or not there are other scientific benefits to it, um, we can leave to the scientists. Bottom line is you guys agree either way, just in terms of making your pasta taste good, you need to salt the water to season the pasta. And because that salty, starchy pasta water has special properties, right, Matt? Well, we actually debated this at length and we um, talk about the myth of pasta water. And to me as a food writer- It's a myth now? Oh, man. Daniel and I debated at length about this idea of the starchy water being gold. And we came to the conclusion that Reserving that water, potentially burning your hand while putting into a smaller vessel, which often happens that splashing, and then adding that back to your pasta, it doesn't yield anything more than what you could do with hot water. I think the argument people make is that the starch in the pasta water is helping to bind and emulsify the oils uh, in the sauce or the fats in the sauce and helps it to therefore thicken up and stick to your pasta better. But the question that we have is, you know, is there really enough starch in the water to make a difference um, significantly? And like Bill Nye, from a scientific perspective, we, we, we think, um, no, there isn't actually a, an advantage. And, and the, the concern is that if you properly salted your pasta cooking water, by adding it to your finished dish, you often oversalt it. Yeah. Um, and so you're better served to just uh, have some hot water on the side right from the faucet and use that to cook your pasta in the pan. All right. I think we made a lot of good progress on the pasta water salting front here today. Bottom line, even though Kieran was right about how the salt doesn't change the boiling point, I say overall, Arwen was right. Because at the end of the day, scientific explanations, boiling points, all that stuff aside, the bottom line is you still want to salt your pasta water, not just sprinkle it on afterwards. Because the salt takes time to absorb into the pasta. It will make your pasta taste better. End of the day, you got to salt the pasta water, period. I won't accept any other explanation.
Well, Daniel Holtzman, chef and founder of The Meatball Shop in New York, Matt Rodbard, founder and editor of Taste Magazine. Together, you are the authors of the new book, Food IQ, 100 Questions, Answers, and Recipes to Raise Your Cooking Smarts. Congrats on the book. Thank you guys so much for joining us. What an extraordinary experience. I'm, I'm leaving this with a huge, wide, genuine smile on my face. Yeah, Dan. Much thanks. Oh, well, you guys, too. This is a lot of fun. This is, this is, this is the highlight of my day. Uh, thanks, Dan. All downhill from here, folks. <laughs> Next week on the show, I talk with Andre Mack, a sommelier who owns a wine shop, a ham bar, a breakfast taco joint, and more. He's got a great story, and it all started when he watched the TV show Frasier. That's next week. Meanwhile, don't forget, you can now get Cascatelli made from chickpeas. It's gluten-free, high in protein, high in fiber. It's made by Bonza. Get it at Whole Foods or through the Bonza website, eatbonza.com. And hear the whole story of how we made it in last week's Mission Impossible Part 8. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producers... Andres O'Hara. And... Johanna Mayer. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by Michelle O'Brien and Fernanda Aguero. The show is mixed by... Marina Pais. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. I'm... I'm Ava Seacrest, and I'm eight years old from Bremerton, Washington, reminding you to eat more, eat less, eat more better. Yes. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.